We're now going to turn to God's word on this prophet Sunday. I'm so thankful to be a part of this church. Uh, we were away last week and it's just good to be back. And Ruby, I'm so thankful. Usually Ruby sits in the second row behind me. And it's one of my greatest joys every morning to come and just try to get my voice together with hers and praise to God. And I'm just so thankful that God has made you a part of this family. And thank you for serving with us and sharing this morning. We're going to be looking at um, one text that perhaps is expected for a prophecy Sunday. That's Hebrews chapter one. And then I want you to hold on to that and turn to James chapter four, an unexpected text, but one that I think is is appropriate because prophecy Sunday implies that God is in control of the past, present and future and that when the future seems to be uncertain and out of control, it is not. Uh, So much so that God was able to say, this is going to happen. It is not out of my control, and he continues to do so. We're going to see that today. And in fact, before we look at his word, let's have a word of prayer as we think about uncertainties that are filling our world today, particularly in India. And I don't know if you have been hearing about the, uh, the violence that has broken out in Nigeria, particularly among many of our uh, fellow churches there as a Muslim versus Christian violence has been breaking out and, and it's been so we'll uphold our brothers and sisters and people around the world in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, as we gather in this place and we have the opportunity uh, to remember that you are the God of the universe, the God of history, that you are also in control of the present and the future. We take this time now, Father, to pray for those who probably are wondering what the future is going to hold for them. We think in particular of the violence that has broken out in in Bombay and Mumbai during this past week. Uh, A city, one of the world's great cities that so often has been characterized by peace, has had the violence that broke out all over their city in this past week, where at least 185 people are known to have lost their lives. Father, it's hard to know how to pray in times such as these. Father, we do pray for those who have experienced such loss. Father, for the families that have lost loved ones. For those who still face such uncertainty, wondering whether their loved ones are still alive. Father, we don't know how to pray except your word tells us to uphold them. And to pray that your spirit might minister to those who are hurting so much during these days. Father, our prayer is somehow that they might know that this is not outside of your control and might be able to know your presence, to know that your word is true, that you are a refuge and a strength and a very present help in these times of trouble. That, Father, somehow people might also turn their faces toward you where it becomes so clear that military powers and political powers are not fully in control of things that happen, but never do things transpire that are outside of your your sovereign ability to bring victory out of out of devastation. Father, we pray that people may even turn their faces toward you and find you as their refuge and strength in these days. Father, your word instructs us to pray for those who are in authority, political authority. And so we do for the leaders in Mumbai and in India. Father, give them wisdom, help them to know what to do and what to say in these days. And Father, for our own nation's leaders and uh, also for those of the world that look at this kind of terrorism and violence, I pray that you might give to those leaders that you have appointed wisdom to know what to do in such turbulent days. 
Father, we pray also for Nigeria. The news has come to me that even in the uh, seminary, the Jets Seminary, the uh, seminary of the Evangelical Church of West Africa, where uh, that seminary has been raided and uh, gunfire has broken out. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in those days that somehow in these days of violence, people may see uh, our faith in you, their faith in you. We pray for their protection, pray for their families. And, Father, for those, again, in leadership in Nigeria and even in that seminary, we pray, Father, that you would direct them, give them wisdom and courage so that, Father, they might represent justice in these days of injustice. So, Father, we bring these and so many other matters to you. Uh, Help us to know how we should live in such days so that people may see us and know that our faith is not in anything in this world but in you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand today as we hear the word of the maker of heaven and earth, the one who is in control of all that transpires. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. And then over in James chapter four. Talking to us when we think that we're in control of the future. Listen to what he says. Verse 13. Now, listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city. Uh, Spend a year there, uh, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. And this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. When I was in college back in the 70s, we we had a term for a group of people. Uh, that seemed to be making progress with their careers and with their lives. We called them yuppies. You remember that word? Uh, Yuppies. Uh, Young, upwardly mobile professionals. Then a day happened back in 1987. Some of you remember October 19th. It was called by some Black Monday that made us revise that nickname for the yuppies. And we started calling them Puppies, and that is previously upwardly mobile <laughs> professionals. Uh, some of you, if you remember that particular day, it was, it was a day when 23% of the value of the Dow Jones index was wiped off the boards in one day. It reminded so many people of another day back also in October 29th, but 1929 I wasn't too active during those days. But that was called Black Tuesday. Black Tuesday. Uh, 
It was the day that sort of launched the Great Depression. It was the day where 13 percent of the stock market was wiped off the the charts. And many people said that that sort of thing would never happen again. Uh, But it did. Uh, Measures were put in place to keep it from transpiring, but it it transpired anyway. Now, now, nowadays, of course, we have uh, all sorts of measures in place to keep those one-day free falls from happening. And yet, I'll tell you, as we gather here near to the end of 2008, we have seen it happening, perhaps not in one day, but in day after day after day of declines. Now, I know this last week has been better. But I'll tell you, in 2008, when you think about the economy, it has been filled with turbulence and uncertainty. And it's touched so many of us in our church family, hasn't it? Uh, With the loss of so many jobs in our country, with the loss of so many of you of of the investments that have prepared you for retirement. These are challenging days. I, I remember back in 1987, I was living up the coast in Southern California. They were days of such optimism. People just seemed to think in the 80s, do you remember? Nothing would happen. We were just marching forward. And then suddenly, so unexpectedly, it happened. I'll tell you, there wasn't a whole lot of laughter uh, in the church congregation that next Sunday after that very, very difficult time. And I feel the same sort of thing happening here in our day. Don't you? Uh, I read uh, the editorials in the newspaper about who's to blame for what's happening in the economy. And, you know, the same sorts of things are said. Many people blame uh, the uh, real estate market and the inappropriate mortgages that were had. In fact, last week, some of you know, I was in Italy visiting my son and I pulled up the International Herald Tribune and there was an editorial there saying that we have at last found uh, weapons of mass destruction, uh, WMDs. But they weren't in Iraq. They were in the subprime mortgages here. (laughs) It was so, so clever. So kind of painfully, kind of painfully funny. So many people have blamed that. So many people have blamed, if you were watching the news, as the CEOs of the automobile industry went to Washington, blamed the greedy CEOs, and it's all their fault. Of course, as we followed the election, this past year, many people blamed politicians, particularly the president and, uh, and the Congress. Remember, the constant talk is people were not on their watch. But if I'm on the watch, uh, it won't happen again. Trying to, if you vote for me, then, then you can have confidence. But I, I begin to wonder as I gather here uh, as a pastor and a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether there isn't something that you and I, in such turbulent economic and political times, whether there isn't something that you and I should see that's much bigger than mortgage rates and greedy CEOs and political systems, whether there isn't something that God himself would have us to learn when we gather in such turbulent, uncertain days as we look into the future. I remember 1987... Uh, picking up the Wall Street Journal the day after the fall of the stock market. And it was telling the story of one of the uh, most successful Wall Street financiers who said he'd been driving into to Manhattan that day. And already as he drove in, do, do, some of you remember, it was terrible weather back in New York. Uh, the, the dark uh, thunderclouds were there. The rain was starting to fall. The wind was howling. And he said, I began to wonder if this might be an omen of what's going to happen today. He said, I began to think about that little man that I saw every day on the street corner wearing a sandwich board saying, the end is near. 
Now, he laughed uh, because usually we in the uh, 20th, 21st century, we don't think about the economy and politics in such apocalyptic terms. We'd never think the end is near simply because that is happening. But still, when we gather, I wonder whether there isn't something that we who claim to be God's people. Isn't there something that we should learn in days such as this? Because we live in a world in which many people place their confidence about what is going to happen in the future, in their careers, uh, in their possessions, and sometimes in their, and maybe I should say, our investments. Now this may be an unusual topic for you on the first Sunday of Advent, but I think it is so appropriate. Because the first Sunday of Advent usually focuses our attention on the fact that God is in control of the future, so much so that long before Jesus came, he was able to give us the specific prophecies that we heard already today from Isaiah, from Micah, telling us that a Messiah would come, telling us where he would be born, telling us what he would be like. It's obvious that for people in those days where they were also turbulent and difficult days, God says, wait, even though you don't see it, I am the one who is in control. Calling upon people to wait upon him, to trust in him. And of course, now that we gather here in the 21st century, we look back and know that the one who came was worthy of their trust. For he is the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that when you and I live in these difficult and turbulent days, that perhaps it's a time in which God would say to us, Listen, this is the time to make sure that your confidence is not found in anything in this world, but in me alone. Because no matter how many people we may blame about economic ups and downs, at the end of the day, the one most important factor, now you know this, is is confidence. Confidence. When, when, When the bubble of confidence is very optimistic, Well, everybody invests and everybody spins and everything goes well, but it doesn't take very much to puncture that bubble, does it? And suddenly everything sinks. And the question we have to ask is, in whom should we place our confidence? In whom should we place our trust, even in a world and in our personal lives when things are not going so well? And it seems to me that that is exactly what James takes up in James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. I don't know if you've studied the book of James very much. I'll tell you, he is a straight talker. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, just hard hitting. You know, back in the 70s, I lived in northern Germany. And James reminds me of a northern German. Uh, just tells you what I always loved. I always loved the people there because they never played strategies back behind my back. They just let me know what they think. And uh, that's the way James is, too. He just lets us know what he thinks. And what he says is this. Listen, he says. Those of you who think that you can control the future. Those of you who think that confidence in the future is to be found in anything in this world. You need to know that it isn't. It never has been. And it never will be. And when it comes to us living our lives and and pursuing our careers and making our investments. I think he would say something like this. Make wise judgments. Uh, work hard, uh, find the best bank to, to have your possessions invested in, make sure you find the best mutual funds and stocks to be able to invest in. But at the end of the day, 
you'll find that those securities are not secure. That is not where you should put your trust and your confidence. In fact, I think he would say only a fool would put his ultimate faith in such things. That at the end of the day, there are only a couple of things that we can be absolutely sure of. And all of them relate to God himself. We can be absolutely sure that God is sovereign. That God will do what he has said he will do. And that someday you and I will stand in front of him and give account for how we have lived. We, we can be sure of that. And, and, and I'm convinced of this. When you and I stand in front of God, uh, worldly possessions are going to be seen to be less significant than we know they are now. And that what really is going to matter is what Jesus called treasure in heaven. And one of the things I've learned is it's often those people who have very few treasures here on earth that often truly have invested in treasure in heaven. Isn't that true? Now, James takes this up as we think about the future here on this first Sunday of Advent. And before I get to the text, I want to have two clarifications. I do this because I've talked about this sort of subject before. And every time after I've talked about it, people bring to me these very difficult questions. So I'm going to take two things up right at the beginning so you don't have to send me an email about this. First... James is not criticizing private enterprise as a system. When he says, now listen, uh, verse 13, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year here, make money, don't do that. Uh, He's not criticizing private enterprise. James is not a first century socialist. He's not a, a communist complaining about a capitalist system. All business back in the first century was private business. In the Old and New Testament times, all business was even family business. So engaging in business is not the problem that he's addressing. Made note of that? And number two, he's not against planning for the future. There are so many places in the Bible, especially the book of Proverbs, where we are told that we are, as people made in the image of God, given the ability and capability to look into the future and to make plans. But at the end of the day, though we make the plans, God is the one who has the trump card over everything. We make plans, but then we surrender them to the Lord. But it's not against making plans. The Bible affirms that, and Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount does as well. What is he saying here then? Well, he's talking specifically about many things, and the one that I want to talk about today is how we use this limited commodity of time that God has given us. I originally wanted to call this sermon the arrogance of our blackberries or the arrogance of our schedule books where we think that we can just plan exactly what we're going to do in the future. Because I think what James is taking up is this, that those who sort of like your pastor are are rather goal oriented And like to pray and and plan strategically for the future and try to make sure that our schedule books reflect, you know, a plan and a goal, Uh, especially for for then people like that who get into places of of business or finance that, that you and I are susceptible to one particular kind of weakness. Um, And that weakness is self-centeredness. What he takes up down in verse 16 As it is, you boast and brag. 
all such boasting is evil. Now, listen. Here we come into Christmas season. Did you know that there sometimes are certain professions that we as a society stereotype in a negative way? Uh, I mean, one of the professions in our society that's often stereotyped negatively is the uh, legal profession, isn't it? I'm looking here for We have so many lawyers in this church. Uh, law, legal jokes, lawyer jokes are told by uh, again and again and again, in spite of the fact that most lawyers, especially those who are Christians, go into it because they want to further justice and compassion in this world. But there is another profession that at Christmas time usually is labeled in a negative way. And that is the whole arena of finance and business. I had never realized this until I was watching some Christmas movies with a good businessman friend of mine. And have you ever noticed that in almost every one of the classic Christmas movies, it's a business person or a person of finance who's the bad guy? Almost there, of course, the Christmas carol with Scrooge. Uh, it's a wonderful life. You've got that banker there that's, that's such an elf. The father who doesn't take it. Even Miracle on 34th Street. Almost all of them. The bad person is the person of of finance. In spite of the fact that all of you people who are in business, in my lifetime, I've often found that the most generous and sacrificially giving people are people of business and finance. It's it's not always that way. But having said that, uh, that that God calls people into business and into finance... Let us face this fact, that those who often are good in those arenas uh, and those of us who like to pursue goals and make plans and go after those plans are very vulnerable to thinking that the, the world sort of revolves around us. We make plans and we see them succeed, so we think they're going to succeed the next time as well. And that's what James is taking up. He says, listen to you who say, this is what you're going to do, and this is what I'm going to do, and this is what's going to happen. That's not how a Christian thinks. It leads you to becoming self-centered, to, as he says in verse 16, boast and brag. In fact, that word boasting in Greek that he uses twice is a hard word to translate. It usually has to do with something that has a whole lot of air and no substance. It would be used for a, a quack physician you know, who used to go around in the old days uh, with his elixir that can cure everything. Uh, uh, warts, uh, baldness, uh, prickly heat, just take this. <laughs> and you know it's a whole lot of big words with no real substance to it. What James is saying is this. When you think that you control the future, even your own future, so that you make the plans and determine what's going to happen. They're big words, but you're going to find out at the end of the day that they're empty. Why? Because they presume that we're in control of things. In what ways do they presume? Three ways. It presumes on the availability of time. That we say, well, today or tomorrow, look, look, look at my now, of course, I use an electronic device. Uh, I used to have you remember the old day timers where you'd write it in. Look at my schedule book. It's filled up for the next two years and it's going to be productive time. It presumes that we have any time we may or may not. Second, 
It presumes that we have the power of ultimate choice. You see how James puts it. Today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year here or there. We, we act as if the future is in our hands. It doesn't matter that there may be someone else who has a plan for our tomorrow. And finally, it also presumes upon success. We shall make money. See, this is a danger of, of leadership. You know, even as you look for a senior pastor, I'm sure let's let's find somebody who's succeeded before, because maybe that person will succeed when he comes here. There's confidence in looking for somebody who's succeeded before, but there is danger in it. Because success at the end of the day depends upon God. This, this idea we're going to make money, we've done it before is confidence. All right. But it's confidence not placed in God. But in ourselves. And I'll tell you, when the confidence is in ourselves, we will let ourselves and everyone else down. See, so many times we plan as if we'll live as long as we want. We'll do whatever we want. We'll succeed as we have in the past. And then we begin to realize, as our world has realized in 2008, that the future may not be exactly what we had expected. So I think James would be saying, listen, listen. There is a point. Go ahead and, and make plans. That's a gift that God has given you. Work hard. Try to make wise investments. But by all means, always know that God is the one who is in control. And humbly submit your futures and all of your ways to him. But how do we do that? How do we do that? What is the solution to this weakness of becoming self-centered? And, and, and I just wrote down, as I was thinking about this message today, for a very simple I hope very practical helps to us as we learn to walk with the Lord who is in control of the future. Let me make four statements to you in what I've called the solution. Number one, we who are followers of Jesus, who have submitted our lives to the Lord, must always acknowledge the sovereignty of God in this world. Isn't that what James is getting at? What, what you ought to say is, if it is the Lord's will, because he is the one who is in control. To me, this is one of the very practical parts of having a prophecy Sunday at Advent season. Because we are forced, every first Sunday of Advent, to gather in this place. And to know that the God that we call our Father is the one who holds the future in his hands. There's always this tension. He gives us the responsibility of making a difference in the future, but still says the future is not in jeopardy. How all that works together has led people to debate, but both are true. We are to be involved in what is happening. We're, we're seeking to make a difference in our families, and in our communities, and in our world. But at the end of the day, God is the one who is sovereign. And that should give us great confidence when we gather here, because what that means is this. When everything in this world feels like it's out of control, it is not. When it's outside of my power, it is not outside of his. And we keep coming back to verses like that beloved passage in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. For we know that God is at work in all things for the good of those who love him, for the good of those who are called according to his Eternal purpose. 
So one of the things we do when we gather in the midst of a turbulent world is we pray about that world. We we seek to make a difference in that world, but we also pull down and have confidence because God is sovereign over everything in this universe that he has created. Do you see that? It's one of the reasons we need to worship regularly. Because in our regular lives, everything else seems to be in control. But when we come here, we recognize that God alone is. Second, when we gather in the presence of this sovereign God, we take time to acknowledge our own limitations. Um, I listen to motivational speakers and I sometimes read the self-help books that you can get at the local bookstore. And they all tell me to have confidence in myself. And, and we do need to operate with confidence, don't we? we? We should never have this attitude, oh, I have no ability. I can't do anything so that we won't do anything. That's not how we're supposed to live. But at the same time, this, this kind of children's story of, of the engine that just always says, I think I can, I think I can. And when I really think I can, I'll be able to do it, is leaving something out. Uh, that humble recognition that all of us as Christians have come to, that there are certain things we cannot do. Didn't we come to faith in Jesus because we acknowledge that we can't do it? We recognize that we've sinned and that we need what the Bible calls a savior, a rescuer to forgive us of our sins and to have help tomorrow to be different from yesterday. So in our humility, we've given our lives to him and said, Father, I can't do it. Here is my life. And he takes it and he gives himself to us. So we as Christians will always have this humility. We will we will operate with all of the strength and ability that God has given us, we'll work hard to develop the gifts that he has entrusted to us, but we'll always have this humility of knowing that eternal things happen only when they are done through the strength and to the glory of God himself. Um, one of the times I learned this most powerfully was a time when I spent uh, an evening with a good friend of mine a very successful businessman, a very strong donor to the school that I was a part of. And I had just started as a president of a school. So this whole matter of going to people and asking them to support, you know, that was hard at, at that point for me. And I remember him saying to me, Greg, don't be embarrassed to come to people who have means and to ask them to use some of their means for something that will last longer than they will. He said, those who are Christians, who have resources, have learned a lesson. That if we live for this business or, or this money that we have, it will not last and it will not be fulfilling. He said, if you can come and if you are convinced that what you are asking me to give to is going to last longer than these possessions will last, then do it with great, great joy and I will give with great, great joy. So I learned to do that. And he gave. And he usually smiled uh, when he did it. And it brought me to that, that definition of stewardship that I've told you about. That good Christian stewardship is using that which doesn't last very long to bring about that which lasts longer. 
pretty simple, don't you think? And that the Christian can be the ultimate steward because we can give what we know is not going to last for that which is eternal, the work of God. So we acknowledge the limitations of our own lives and of all that we have done and all that we have so that we can entrust those things to be used by God. It's not false humility of saying that I cannot do anything. It is simply surrendering all that we have that God may use it in a way that will last far beyond ourselves. Uh, The forefathers of our own country understood this. Um, And this illustration uh, I used to use in the school that I was in, and our students learned to do this. Did you know that in the early days of the United States, uh, underneath the announcements that politicians would make about things that were going to happen, town meetings or anything, they would write the letters DV. I think we put it up here. Uh, you, You can find it in the historical records. Uh, town meeting is going to be taking place at this particular place in Boston, Massachusetts. And at the bottom, you would find these little letters, DV. It was Latin, Deo Volente. God, volition, wills. If God wills. Did, did you know that was on the documents of the early part of our country? I wonder if we can still find them in Sacramento now. <laughs> I was even looking at our Christmas schedule here. We should have written that on the bottom of our Christmas schedule. It would have made a good sermon illustration for this morning. I encouraged the students at at the school I used to be at to put that at the bottom of every day of their schedule books. This is what we're going to do. We're going to plan DV, if God wills. Now, I grew up in the South. And in the South, people use this phrase, Lord willing, all the time. It, it just seemed to me almost like it was a superstitious statement. Have any of you heard that? It's kind of like knock on wood. <laughs> so I didn't even like it. But I have come to see the wisdom in that phrase. And I think it can transform every moment of our lives. Giving every day of our lives energy. We will have a life if God wills. We will show up at church If God wills, we will do this in the future. If God wills, that transforms all of life because we acknowledge our limitations and trust him. Which brings me to the third point. We acknowledge God's sovereignty. In the light of that, we acknowledge our own limitations and surrender every moment and every decision to him. We even acknowledge our own mortality. What is your life? James says. You know that in and of yourself, apart from God being present, this life just feels like a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Uh, The older we get, doesn't it seem like life goes faster? Do you feel like that? It used to seem like the years lasted longer. And now, can you believe I've been here well over a year? I feel like I just showed up. Maybe those of you who are younger than I am, you think, well, it feels like five years. I, I I don't know. But this is the way it feels. The longer we live, the more we know how true this is. Life goes by so fast. And and what we invest in often are those things that don't last either. But when we acknowledge that our lives don't last, we want to make sure that our lives do last. And when we invest them in eternal things, in God's things, then that's what really, really matters. Um, Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 12 about a man who didn't understand this. He was a fellow who had been a pretty successful farmer. 
And he said, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I've already filled up these barns. I'm going to build more barns and then I'm going to fill them up. And when they're all full, I'm going to fill them up. And eventually I'm going to retire and just have a good life in Malibu or Maui or someplace. You know what Jesus said to him? You fool. Which means a person who leaves God out of their lives. Don't you know that your life will be required of you tomorrow? I just got back from Italy on Thursday. Thursday. So I'm trying to see if I should have jet lag. I was thinking about this message. And though I didn't get there, I began thinking about Pompeii. In Pompeii in the first century... Uh, There was a a a volcanic eruption and lava came through the entire city. And still, if you go to the city of Pompeii, there is a a skeleton encrusted by lava of of a business person who is clutching on to his pots and pans and and the money that he still had. He didn't sell one of those pots and pans. To me, it is a graphic illustration of this, that, that this life doesn't last long. And when we try to hold on to things in this life, they will never prove to be fulfilling. But if our lives are invested in God, if we trust him and live for him. It will last forever. And in fact, if we live lives that say, hey, if the Lord wants me to do this, I will do it. It gives new energy to every day of our lives. So we acknowledge our own mortality, that every day may be the last day that we live if God wills, so that each day we live is a gift from him. Live to his glory. And finally, in this world, live day by day according to what you know and what God has revealed. And that brings us to this strange verse for some people, verse 17. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, that person sins. Many, many people read that verse and say, what does that have to do what, with what he's talking about here? But I think it has everything to do. And I'll tell you why. Because so many times when we talk about matters like this, um, people say, Pastor, why make a big deal about making sure every moment of our lives is entrusted to God? Why should God be ignore, annoyed if I just go about my own business my own way? You know, if I just conduct my business... Do what I want to do. I'm not harming anybody else. You know, I'm a good American. I believe in free enterprise. Live and let live. This first Sunday of Advent, to take time to tell me to live every day of my life, if God wills, that's not like you're talking about some big sin. This isn't like the Ten Commandments, is it? How, how can this be wrong? Listen, that sort of thinking is why verse 17 is here, and it's so prevalent in our day. Even though it seems out of place, it isn't. James is saying that the real Christian, as we live our lives, we're not just interested in avoiding evil. He says we are interested every moment of our lives in living lives the way God would have us to live them. What he's telling us to do is make sure we understand what God teaches us in his word about how we should live. Take time in prayer To hear the voice of God directing you and saying, this is how you should live. This is what is good. This is what is right. But if you then know or have the opportunity to know what is good and you don't do it, it is wrong. 
It is a call to us to constantly seek God's priorities in our lives. And let me tell you why this is here. Because if you and I fail to put God's priorities into the first places in our lives, we will leave out very important things. What kinds of things? Prayer. It's bound to happen. Because prayer is a confession of our dependency upon God, right? And if we're just living our own lives and saying, I can do it, we won't be seeking God's face, will we? Second, my guess is if we just pursue our own business, our own way, we'll leave the church out of our lives. Or we may show up at a service on a Sunday morning, but become irritated if it goes a few minutes long. And when the pastor calls us to be in a small group and to serve our children, our young people or in the community, we'll say, wait a minute, I've got my business. He doesn't realize how many hours I work in my business. And so we don't have any time to volunteer for the life of the church. You know what Howard Hendricks from Dallas Seminary once said? A person who's too busy to make a difference in his church is too busy. When I think he's right. Third, I believe we'll probably leave our families out of our lives. How often has the tale been told of the husband or wife who says, well, no, I'm not going to get home tonight yet again before the children go to bed. I know I haven't been back for the last three weeks, but, you know, there's, there's this new contract that we just have to win. I've just got to stay in the office. You see, priorities that the Bible gives us are shoved out of place. And fourth, I even think our friendships will suffer. Can't you hear it? Sorry, Dan. I know we can't get together yet again this month. But, you know, I, things are hopping at the office and I've just got to make sure we get this deal done. See, what James is shouting to us all is that a Christian doesn't just mind his own business. He's trying to say what Stephen Covey said in his book, First Things First. Stephen Covey said you should find out what your priorities are and then take your schedule book and make sure your time reflects your priorities. What James is saying is much more biblical. He's saying find out what God's priorities are. Then take out your schedule book and make sure that his priorities are shown in the way That you spend your time. You see, the greatest commandment in God's priorities is the love of God. You don't have to become a devil worshiper to break that commandment, right? And the second greatest commandment is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. You don't have to steal and kill to break that commandment. Just ignore the people God brings across your paths. But we who are Christians have given our lives to him. And that means every day of our lives, every decision of our lives, every encounter of our lives. And the call of God upon our lives on this first Sunday of Advent is to make sure that his priorities are ours. Do you know the story of the rich man and Lazarus? It's in Luke chapter 16. I'm getting ready for a series in Luke next year, and I was reading it on the plane back home. And when I saw it, I looked at that. Do you realize that we were not told of anything that the rich man did that was wrong, in spite of the fact that in the judgment day he was separated from God? I think that he could have turned to God and said, but, but God, why am I here separated from you? I didn't do anything. 
And God would turn back to him and say, exactly right. You didn't do anything. I sent people across your path and you didn't care. I gave you the opportunity to live life to the full and you left me out. So I'm telling you, on this first Sunday of Advent, this Prophecy Sunday, we entrust our futures to the God who holds the future. Uh, When things are happening in our lives that we don't understand, we turn them over to him and say, Father, I want this to be different, but I will trust you and we will find that he is worth waiting for. And we will make sure that our todays and tomorrows and every tomorrow in the future is surrendered fully to his will. In fact, my call upon us all is to take out our schedule books And if you can figure out a way to do it, our Blackberries and iPods, and right at the bottom of every day, DV, Deo Valente, I will live, I will live for God, I will trust in God, I will have confidence, because everything I do, I do according to his will and to his glory. Amen. Let's pray together. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I'm wondering if there are some things that are causing so much turmoil in your life that you just need to give those to God even now. I know that we have a lot of folks in our church who have lost their jobs. Stories have come to me about people who have lost loved ones. I don't know all of the things that may be causing turmoil in the depths of your heart. But will you take this moment at the end of our service and commit those things fully to the Lord? Uh, Tell him that even though you may not understand fully what he is doing, that you will trust him. Father, on behalf of these people who have gathered to worship you today, I pray that they may find your word to be true, that you are a refuge and strength and a very present help in every time. That even though the future to them and to us seems uncertain, it is not to you. And our lives are in your hands. For those who are facing tumultuous days and are unsure about what they should do. Provide even now your guidance. For Father, we want to live to your glory. We are praying that in a world of economic and political upheaval, that this world may see our lives and know that you are there and be drawn to you. In Jesus' name, amen.